Hello, Old Testament study students. I'm Moses, one of your teaching assistants. And I'm doing this in an audio format just because the time it takes to, to sit down and do the live streams, it takes a lot of time to do it. And um, I'm, I'm sure as some of you may, may know if you are doing online classes or you are doing hybrid classes, it takes a lot of time to go through the material and you also have your home life to consider. And so um, I'm doing it this way for, for two reasons. The first reason is that doing it this way, it is beneficial to you in terms of that you can do it wherever you are. You can do it uh, on the commute to and from school. If you're still going to school, you can do it when you're working out, when you're in the store, doing laundry, you can do it whenever you 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 need to listen to this. So that's one of the reasons I'm doing it this way. Second reason I'm doing it this way is because I can get things out faster to you doing it this way compared to setting up the lives, having to do graphics, having to do things like that. And that takes a lot of time and preparation in terms of doing it. So doing it this way is much faster for in terms of me being able to get stuff out to you and also for you to then take it and to consume it and to integrate it into your, your learning. So hopefully this works. If it doesn't work, or if it does, uh, please go to the Facebook group and comment or you know say something. Just let me know how it's going for you. And that is all, that's it. So without further ado, let us get started. Okay, so the first question that we have is question 61. What policies and actions of Solomon as king had caused widespread suffering among the majority of the people in his empire? Uh, so this you can find on page 254, uh, chapter 15 of your boat book, um, reading the Old Testament. And it's the uh, first paragraph. Uh, his great building projects had required heavy taxes and a forced draft of skilled laborers and engineers to build them. Moreover, he needed to maintain a very large and costly army to keep the small neighboring territories that David had conquered under Israel's control. So that's one of the, the main re issues that they had at the time. Um, it, was, it was taxes. They had to tithe and give tax to to fund both the temple project as well as to fund the, the military, the military in order to keep their, their country and their, and their land safe. So that, that's the question 61. Another thing that caused the widespread suffering among the majority of the people in his empire was the fact that he was married to so many wives and this is um, sentence, same paragraph, his foreign wives and their pagan gods angered faithful believers and his redivision of the country to break up the tribes and put all the governors directly under royal control offended the local identity and loyalty of the tribes. So it's the idea that his wives, when Solomon married all these wives, he did it more in terms of fostering foreign relations in that the relationships that he has with his wives are merely political. They're not, they're not personal. So 
these wives then uh, coming to Israel, they brought along their own foreign gods with them. And in doing so, they in a way polluted the Christian, the, uh, the Jewish identity of who God was by bringing and worshiping their own gods and goddesses and idols and icons in the, in the temple area that Solomon was currently building. So that's question 61. Question 62, compare the reasons for the division of Solomon's empire after his death to the reasons for the division of the United States into the Union and Confederacy in 1860 and 1861. So the reasons of Solomon's empire after being divided after his death is because his son, Rehoboam, was in charge at the, after Solomon died. What he did was he continued to do what Solomon was doing regarding tax law, but he, he doubled down on it. People were giving more money to, to fund the temple. They were giving uh, more money to fund the military. And they also, Solomon's wives, were still worshiping in the temple and they were still polluting it. So that is one of the reasons that Solomon, that Rehoboam caused the, the, the schism between Judah and uh, a remnant of Simeon and the rest of the tribes. Now, United States, like one of the main like heated issues about the cause of the Civil War is that it was caused, it was caused to end slavery, that it was the freedom of, of black people was one of the reasons that the Civil War was started. So the reasons for the division of Solomon's empire after his death, the reasons, it was pretty, I wouldn't say it was the same thing, but instead of, it's more like comparing the uh, American Revolution to what happened. Because same thing with the American Revolution, you have taxes, the, 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 the cost of tax, cost of tea, cost of stamps. You have all these little things that add up in the end that the colonists um, just, they felt that they couldn't afford because they were paying more to Britain than what they themselves were either making or they didn't have enough to live the lives that they wanted to. So that's why they, that's why they, they revolted. So I would find more of a comparison between uh, ancient Israel in this time, the split between the two kingdoms to the American revolution rather than to the uh, civil war. But I can see how you draw that analogy to the civil war because of the separation between the North and the South, and you have these different alliances. So I can see that for sure. Um, how are the United States of America reunited? Um, they're united by a leader, Abraham Lincoln. Um, why were the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah not reunited? They were not reunited because of the same issue that the the gods of these of Solomon's foreign wives interfered with their worship in the temple. And that was one of the main reasons that they were not um, reunited. 
another reason is again because of the of the law, the tax law, the tides, and and Rehoboam was pushing that on his people, and they were unhappy. And until that were to change, and and that they would also go back to worshiping just God, they weren't happy, and they wouldn't have any of it. So that's why they were not united. Okay, number sixty-three. What were the strengths and advantages of the southern kingdom over against the northern kingdom? So the strengths of the northern kingdom was that, and this is on boat. Uh, chat, uh, page 256, chapter 15, um, second paragraph down. <coughs> Excuse me. The Northern Kingdom contained the richer and more fertile part of Palestine, including the lush valley of Jezreel and the green hills of Galilee. It also had a far greater population. So Jeroboam was, the, was its first king, set about quickly to create a state with an identity of his own. So they had land, they had natural resources. And so that was one of the reasons that the Northern Kingdom was advantageous in that they had those two things, land and natural resources, because those two things, from that you can get your, you have your iron, you have your, your precious metals, you can make weapons, you can sell, you can use the gold to trade stuff for. So that was one of the advantages of the northern kingdom over the southern. The main advantage of the southern kingdom was that in the southern kingdom was the temple. And the temple for Jews at the time was very, very important. In, I don't know what would be a good example to equate the temple to today. Um, I mean, traditional America, church isn't that important. I would maybe have to say like, like really like, you know, pure blood American, whatever that means. Uh, it's the idea of the flag and what it represents is what I would suppose is the closest thing that Americans would have to the Jewish idea of what the temple was. Um, but apart from that, I can't think of anything, anything else that equates to that. Um, yeah. So those were both of the advantages of the Southern Kingdom and the uh, Northern Kingdom. So which kingdom had the better initial leader and king? Um, it would have to be the, the Northern Kingdom where Jeroboam was with a J because uh, in the book of, is it First Kings, um, Jeroboam, is a laborer who works on the temple. He runs, is he, um, Boat calls it at the bottom of page uh, 254, uh, Jeroboam, a former chief of forced labor, of uh, Solomon's forced labor gangs who had revolted and fled to, to be their king. So Jeroboam, he was a blue collar person he would work in the, the stone quarries where they would cut away the stone in order to haul it over to the, the temple area. And he was in charge of, of those men, right? And so what he would do is he would, he'd, he'd lead them to 
whatever that they would heal this man to do that which they had to do, which was go down to the quarry, check away at the stones. And it was really, really hard work for them to do that. And then um, one day, uh, a prophet uh, came to Jeroboam and he said to him, I mean, he said to him that um, he would rule over the other tribes apart from uh, the tribe of Judah and a portion of Simeon. And in doing this, he tore his, the prophet tore his cloak into 12 parts. And in doing so, he handed Jeroboam the 10 and he kept the two signifying that he would have the 10 tribes and that Rehoboam or Solomon or David's descendants would have the other, the other two. Now this can all be found in in First Kings, uh, chapter chapter eleven and twelve. So let's move on to question number sixty four. Is what it would be. Right. Um, explain why it is an accurate assessment of the materials in First and Second Kings to consider them like. Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, and all the other so-called historical books of the Old Testament to be theological histories rather than histories of the period depicted in each. Well, comparing uh, these stories, what we are currently reading in right, right now, chapter 15, it's about the belief in God and that the belief of God is should be stronger than the belief in other pagan idols and icons. So, the main reason the, the the split the cause between the northern and southern kingdoms was because not just because of the taxes, but it was also because of the idea that Solomon's wives worshipped these foreign gods in the same area that God was worshipped. So that was one of the main reasons that it was um, that caused the split. Also, for that reason it would be considered a theological a, a, a theological history rather than a history of just plain history of fact. It's, it's, folk, it's driven by the idea of who God is and what God means to the people rather than pure fact. This happened. Um, pure fact would be uh, Solomon was heavy-handed with his taxes. The taxes of the people were doubled by his son. People revolted. The people split the nation into two. One nation had all the, the uh, natural resources. The other nation had the, the temple and the seat of power. And so that would be, those would be facts. But apart from that, it's a theological history because it deals with, you see God's hand in it. God sent the prophet to Jeroboam to tell him that he will rule over 10 different tribes. And so then you have also the idea, uh, so in that when he's ruling over the 10 different tribes, he doesn't want any of his people to go down to the Southern part of Judah to go to the 
the temple to worship God. So what Jeroboam does instead is that he institutes two golden calves to, to symbolize the seat of power of God in that area. In the same way that the two golden that the uh, the golden calf in Exodus was made, Jeroboam made these calves in the same way that it is supposed to be a representation of God rather than another God idol. He wanted to establish God in the area, so he made those calves. Not he didn't want to worship another God. So that's another reason that it would be considered a theological history rather than a history of fact. Question 65, how do you describe the purpose of the dramatic account of the contest in 1 Kings 18 to Elijah and Prophets of Baal? If you were to prepare and share a sermon based on the contest, what would you proclaim in it? You need to read this for sure. It's one of the most riveting uh, uh, stories in the Old Testament. So Elijah makes a bet with these prophets that they cannot command fire from heaven uh, the prophets try to do it, um, and they lose horribly. Elijah prays once, five minutes, half an hour. It's uh, the fire comes down from heaven, and it's not even just the fire. It's the fact that Elijah pre-soaked all the all the rocks and all the sticks in um, in water, so then it was an even more holy event. So um, read. I highly suggest that you sit down, you read. Um, 1 Kings 18. If you have a picture Bible, uh, read that. It's yeah, it's so much fun to read um, stories with images. Okay, number 66. Uh, reflect over the extent in which Elijah and 1 Kings 19 account is depicted as being politically involved by being commanded to appoint Jehu to overthrow the brief Omni Ahab dynasty and to appoint Hazael to overthrow King Ben-Hadad as the ruler in the rival state of Syria. If you were to prepare and share someone based on the text, what would you proclaim in it? Okay, so this is like a mini biblical Game of Thrones right over here. You have now this, this power vacuum in which since the separation of the two different um, tribes, the, the, the two nations, the Southern nation and the Northern nation, you have a power vacuum, like who controls the entire thing? Is it the people who live in the southern nation or is it the people who live in the northern nation tribal area? So these stories in First Kings 19, um, read that again. I would say that you just read that and really understand it and come to, it's a, it's a really good thing to read and to understand and to get to know. And for that, I would just say, read it. Read it and you'll love it. It's like, a, like I said, it's a mini Game of Thrones type of thing. And... Um, the idea of Elijah becoming politically involved as a man of God is interesting in that it shows that God interacts with people on a, on a basis of, of rule in that the ideas and function of government is also commanded by God, but he appoints people who seem to not have it all together. In terms of David, he was seen as as small and, and, and as a runt. Um, then you have people like Solomon. He wasn't, he was really young, wasn't very wise, wise. You have Jeremiah, the same thing, young, not that wise. You have Isaiah, who am I, Lord? 
that kind of he chooses people that are deemed to be un like overlooked by normal normal people. So this is another instance of of God um, going to the the underdog, and also it's an idea that Jehu he is a part of the Jewish military and he also has knowledge of the military might of the enemy and the extent that they can do damage to Israel. So then that can also be a way for them to stop taxing the people as much and that they can also just give as much as is needed rather than being over the rather than overcompensating for that which they don't have in terms of the knowledge that Jehu has being a man on the ground with the soldiers compared to the knowledge that Solomon has living it up in the temple. So those are the two things. So question number 67, what messages do you discern in the vivid first Kings 21 account about Elijah and Naboth's vineyard? If you were in the position of Naboth and offered a more productive vineyard elsewhere by Jezebel, would you have taken it? Okay, so um, prepare a sermon based on this text. So one of the things about this story is again, read it again. It's a really good thing to read. It's very interesting to see how um, faith and sticking to one's uh, guns really applies to, to being a faithful human being in that Naboth um, didn't sell his vineyard to Ahab because he, he didn't, Jezebel was, she was considered, she was a pagan. And Naboth didn't want to be associated with that in that God will then revoke any blessings that he might have. So that's one of the reasons that he didn't want to do that. Another reason is because it was his own land. It was his father's land, father's before him. And he was a state, that was what he, that was all that he knew to do. And he did that well. So well, in fact, that the king wanted to then take his land from him. And then this is again, the issues of using law against the, person whom it is supposed to be protecting. It's the same instance where someone, he uses his power so much so that it makes him a tyrant, makes Ahab a tyrant in the same way that a ruler uses his power to, to control the masses, to do things that are horrible two people say things, write things. It, it's, this, it's that same way. It's more out of jealousy for the people, for what they have, rather than out of pure just hatred. It's more it's jealous. Ahab is jealous of what Naboth has, and he wants what he has. Naboth isn't aware of his jealousy. He rejects the king because that land belongs to him, not the king. So the king and his wife conspire, the, the wife of the king, which is on, conspires to, to, to round up the, the elders of Israel to conspire against Naboth to find him guilty and for him to be killed in order for the land then to be reverted back to the government. So then Ahab himself can take that land and claim it in, in a way that seems as if it is completely normal, but it was his intention all along. So I would highly suggest that you read that, that you read First Kings 21. Okay, number 68. 68, how does an awareness of these, uh, that these Elijah accounts would, well, not at the time of the life of Elijah, 
But centuries later, after neither the northern kingdom nor the southern kingdom of Judah still existed, and while the Israelite people who developed these texts were in exile and were being subjected to the control of the conquerors who worshipped seemingly much more powerful deities, and Yahweh of the Israelites helped you to understand the messages and purposes of these texts. That is one of the longest sentences I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, number 68. Okay, let's just, let's just break this up a little bit. So an awareness that these Elijah accounts, they were not developed at the time of Elijah, but in exile. So one of the reasons that most of the, the, the texts of prophets were developed during the exile was because it was a way for them to remember their history. Because after, because before the exile, they had access to the temple, its scrolls, everything that happened, that it could have been either told uh, through word of mouth orally, or it could have just been told reading from a scroll. It didn't matter. But once they lost access to the temple, temple was destroyed. We cannot, know, we don't know anything about what happened. We don't know, we don't have those texts anymore. What we didn't have is we have people who are, they are um, rabbis and, and priests. They have these stories of the things that were in the scrolls and what was taught and histories of people. And so these things were then written and transcribed at that time because it was important for them, for the older generation to impart the information that they had to the younger one. So that then would make it uh, important and highly relevant to their to their case in order to keep their history and their identity uh, as a um, as God's people, as a Jewish people. So that is uh, the first part of, of this. Let me see. Um, okay, so that's that, that, that's everything. Okay, <laughs> one long sentence. Um, okay, so why is the message in each of these Elijah's tradition texts far more important than the historicity of the text? Uh, i.e. the events that are recorded are historically verifiable. It's very important because it is the, again, it's the faith of the people that really matters, not the history. It's the belief in what God has done for them. And that is what shoots the Holy Spirit adrenaline into their souls. Um, that's Hebrews 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. So if you, if you look at that, uh, Hebrews 12, and I highly suggest that you do, just Take a look at it, verses one, two, uh, maybe three. I think it's one, two, and yeah, one, two, and three. Uh, just take a look at it and, and read it. And it's the idea of repeating the promises, repeating the suffering that God and his people have gone through. That allows you then to be empowered with the knowledge that, oh, they went through beatings. Oh, they went through suffering. They went through hangings. They went through... Uh, lynchings that went through all these bad things and went through exile. Oh, so what's going on with me right now? That can be handled, no problem whatsoever. So it's the idea that history is very important and that the Elijah tradition text in that period of time, he was a major prophet in that the work that he did related directly to who the Jewish people were in terms of their governmental structure, in terms of their um, idea of what God was in terms of their uh, spirituality. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, the message in the Elijah tradition texts are more important than the historicity of the text, in that the message is 
trust God, believe in God, have faith in God. That's what the message is. Okay, so here's another story. So the what messages can you detect? Number 69, uh, okay, number 69. Uh, what messages can you detect in the account of in Second Kings 5 about Elisha and Naaman, the military leader of Syria? Okay, so in that instance, it's a, it's a short story. Uh, again, I recommend that you read it. And um, I'll give you a quick little uh, synopsis. It is... Um, there's a Persian general dude named Damon, who is the current oppressor, the Persians being the Babylonians, Persians, one of the two, being the current oppressor of the Israelites at that time. He goes, he has a, um, a skin condition and a, a slave girl, an Israelite slave girl, tells Naaman's wife to tell him <laughs> To, to go to Elisha. And Elisha is the prophet that follows after Elijah. So Elisha, um, you know, knock, knock, knock at the door. It's Naaman. Naaman, this general, he says, my servant go to my wife to tell me that I have this issue. You can help me. What should I do about it? So one of the things that, uh, so the thing that Elisha tells Naaman is to, oh, do you know, just, no, he doesn't tell him himself. Matter of fact, he sends a messenger to tell Naaman this thing. And the messenger says, oh, uh, you know, go down, go to the river and go to the, the Jordan. Um, get in, get out, get in, get out, get in, get out. Do that seven times and you'll be fine. And Naaman's like, are you kidding me? I came like a billion miles from, from Syria. Are you kidding me? That's all you have to tell me? And angrily, he he went away, slammed it on his face and... Um, Angrily, he, he walked off. And then as he was passing by the Jordan on his way home, he said, ah, tap with it. I'll just give it a go. In and out, in and out, in and out, seven times. And he was healed. And I was like, oh my gosh, what the heck? And so he ran back to the house of Elisha. Elisha, are you there? Like, yeah, dude. So what he did was he then said he proclaimed his faith for God at that moment because he was healed by God through the power of Elisha. So this then shares, um, okay, so, oh, so that's, that's basically everything. Let me see. So the significance of the account in the passage, so read this. Read the question first. Read number 69 first. Then read this. Read the, 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 the passage, 2 Kings chapter 5. And then contrast the faith of the little Israelite slave girl in the account with the faith of the king of Israel in the account. Okay, so there's so much more in depth that I can go with this. Uh, but I'm not going to, you know, to save you the... the, the the time on this. So go ahead and read that. Read this question first, question 69 on your syllabus, and then go in and read chapter five of um, Second Kings. So that's it for questions. So go. Question 70. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm talking so fast right now. I have something coming up in a, in a moment I want to get to. Um, 
but I'm going to go through um, the rest for, for Wednesday. Okay, so question 70. Uh, how are the portrayals of Elisha and Elisha similar in the in the tradition that counts? So they're similar in that they both perform miraculous acts for those who were uh, socially overlooked. Elijah performs a, um, a miracle for a widow who is a Samaritan woman who was considered by the Jews at that time to be unclean. Um, Elisha, however, very interesting, uh, he receives his power from Elijah and, give me a minute. Elisha receives his power from Elijah and in doing so, he is able to help those who are um, socially overlooked as well. Uh, one of the stories of Elisha is helping a woman to pay her taxes in order to save the, the life of her sons and that her husband, she's a widower, her hus she is a widow, uh, her husband died, owed taxes, now his family owes taxes, uh, tax collectors come up to her house and tell her that, listen, pay up or want to take your kids. So what she does is that she, um, she goes to Elisha and what he says to her is to fill up all the pots in the house with uh, oil that you have. And they at the time were very destitute, very poor, they had little oil and oil was considered to be what, what money, like a resource, like gas, like something that is necessary for us to live, like uh, shelter, uh, Wi-Fi. <laughs> it, it was a necessity at that time. So what they so what this woman did was that she had a little bit of oil. Elisha told her to get every pot that she had can get her hands on from her house or neighbor's house. And what she did was she filled up each pot, filled up a pot with oil, and she distributed her little amount of oil over all the pots. And then what she did is that she would invite women to her home and she would sell them oil that she had. And she had enough oil that she could pay off the husband's debts and the two kids can go to college uh, without taking out any student loans. <laughs> that would have been great, but no, that, that wasn't a part of it. Um, but they, they paid off the debts and they were able to, to get away. So Elijah and Elisha, both of them, Elijah and Elisha, what they would both do is that they would interact with those who were deemed socially overlooked and they would help them and spread the message of their faith and that God is the true God and all powerful healing miraculous father to those people. Okay. How the different similarities, okay? Okay, so Elijah is seemed to be more as the timid person, but Elisha, however, uh, is viewed as a uh, more authoritative, a, uh, a person who is like a strict uh, a dealer of the law in that once, um, shortly after he received this power from Elijah, Elisha walked out of a forest and um, he encountered these kids. These kids saw that he was a bald-headed man and they're like, look, hey, yo, baldy, what's up, man? And Elisha sicked two bears on the kids that tore them to shreds completely. So Elisha, I would say, is more 
I'm a don't you play with me kind of fella. And um, and Elijah is is more of a, a chill, timid dude. But he had his moments of, of um, portraying that kind of don't play with me kind of uh, fella either. Okay, so that is question number 70. Okay, and so there's differences and similarities between John the baptizer and Jesus are betrayed. That is really interesting. Okay, so John the baptizer, I'd say, is more of, a, of an Elijah in that he would perform miracles in the same way that Elijah did. But Elisha really held the the rulers accountable for what they were doing. I mean, so did Elijah. Um, but again, I can get more into this. Um, let me see. And Dr. Beck will go over this in class as well. So um, question 71. Explain the distinction between the so-called former prophets and latter prophets in the Israelite Jewish literary tradition. Uh, what is meant by the terms prophets and prophecy within the Israelite Jewish tradition and within the most Christian traditions? So prophet, generally speaking, is a person who can um, tell you the, the future in a way. He uh, has uh, usually a message from the Lord. <laughs> and uh, the message is mainly it is doom and gloom unless you do one thing and that is repent. So that is the um, the general theme of the prophet. The person who is usually sent by God to send a message to people of doom and gloom that will happen if they do, if they do not change their ways. So that is the thing um, that's most associated with the prophet in, um, in the Christian and Jewish traditions. Yeah, so <clears throat> number 72, describe the scope, purpose, unifying theological motif, the Stetson Liebman and the probable dating of major portions of the so-called Deuteronomist history of Israel and its land. Okay, so we talk about the whole Deuteronomist um, the Eloist and Yahwistic traditions uh, earlier in the book and in the course. Let's see here. We discuss all of these things. I am sorry, Zoom cut me off, but I will. Um, I'll go over number seventy-two again. So it is describe the scope, the purpose, and the unifying theological motif that sits in Lieben and the probable dating of the major portions of the so-called Deuteronomist history of Israel in its land. And that is the books Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings um, as, a major witness, uh, as a major writing and redaction accomplishment. So these books that are that are stated here, these books were um, written after the, the, the exile of the, um, of the Jewish people. So the book of, so the books of first and second Kings, the stories of Elijah and Elisha, those were written um, during the exile period around the time of the prophet um, Ezekiel and such. 
So the uh, so let's um, let's go on. So uh, explain the theological message of the Deuteronomist history of Israel in its land and the message in it of why the nation of Israel had failed, why the punishment of the people of Israel was said to have been deserved, and of how God acts in the world and remains faithful to God's word as portrayed in the covenant that God has made with Moses and continues to reveal through the true prophets of God, whom God continues to send. Okay, so this is again a really long sentence. So let us see where to start. So the theological history, message of uh, the Deuteronomist history of Israel and its land, it is uh, wait and hope. That's it. Wait and hope. You need to wait for, for God to uh, arrive and, and to rescue you. And you need to hope that he will provide that rescue. So you need to wait and hope and have hope to wait because you need to wait and hope. So that is the uh, theological message of the Deuteronomist uh, history of Israel and its land. And again, Dr. Beck will go over this um, question, number uh, question 72 uh, on um, Wednesday. Wait, no, he'll go over this on October 19th. Okay, so yeah, he'll go over this on, on Wednesday. Okay, so I hope that this has found you. Okay, now I'm seeing today's Monday that I'm recording this. And okay, so I'm on track. I'm just making sure things have been crazy. Okay, so on Wednesday, you're gonna go over all of all of this right over here. And yeah, so that's pretty much it. I hope that this helps you and that you are doing well where you are, uh, whether at home or or um, in class and that you're, you're getting the material, you're having fun with the material as well. Um, you need to have fun with the material for sure. It's uh, very interesting stuff if you're interested in, in uh, biblical theological history and also uh, just the, the history of mankind's relationship with uh, divinities and um, just that sort of, that story that emerges from it is it's really, an amazing they, they become classics for sure so this is me moses uh one of your teaching assistants signing off i hope that this finds you well and that you can then go into class on wednesday and say i got it dr back and then you run off to class with your oratory wonderful sweet honey nectar standing whatever you know what i'm talking about okay talk to you guys later peace Thank you for listening to TLU Theo Notes. I'll talk to you in the next one. Take care. God bless. Don't forget, I'm your host, Moses T.Y. Peace out later.